I'm Linnea. And I like death by DVD. It's a statement. You are listening to Death by DVD, and this is Milligan Madness. Death by DVD's exploration of the dungeon of Andy Milligan, a nine-disc Blu-ray and CD box set that Severin released earlier this year, chock full of absolute Milligan madness, and we are one by one discussing every movie on the box set in order as they appear. But have no fear, you don't need to own this box set or know anything about Andy Milligan to enjoy the episode. You should be able to find these movies outside of the box set, and recently I had an interesting correspondence with a listener who had asked, when will the next Andy Milligan episode be? They really enjoyed the first one, and they're on the fence getting the box set, which I do have to say is a little pricey and becoming harder and harder to find. They heard the first episode, which was all about the ghastly ones, and wanted to wait to see what I had to say about the rest of the box set. Now, I don't get anything out of this. If you're a fan of Andy Milligan, if you're interested in seeing some of these movies restored and hearing commentary tracks and learning more about them, I strongly would suggest getting it now. And I say that with ease because I didn't know more than half of the movies. I've seen, I would say, the top-tier Milligan, which doesn't mean they're top-tier, it just means they're the most well-known films. Uh, the movie that we're going to be discussing on this episode I actually had never seen before, and I already feel I got my money's worth out of it. I thoroughly enjoy it. The accompanying booklet by Stephen Thrower is fantastic. It's good stuff. Pretty good. Pretty, 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 If you are an Andy Milligan fan, if, if you don't know much about him, and let's say you heard the very first episode of Milligan Madness about the ghastly ones and it sounds interesting to you, I wouldn't say pull the trigger so easily. Maybe wait for two or three more of these episodes to come out. And why I so brazenly say that you don't need to know anything about Andy Milligan, well, I'm not really going to talk about Andy Milligan. This was a big point on the previous episode that I've mentioned three times already. But I said over and over and over again on that episode, we're not going to talk about why Andy Milligan made the choices that he made, who Andy Milligan is, why he did things the way that he did things. And I said all of that because conveniently there is an absolutely wonderful book that you can find for yourself to read about Andy Milligan, his psyche, his relationships, and why he was the way he is, or rather was, because he is deceased. And that is called The Ghastly One by Jimmy McDonough. You can just Google it, check it out, find it. You should be able to get it on Amazon. Maybe. I say things and I have no idea if they're true or not. Look at me, I'm like a Republican senator. So we've got the introduction monologue out of the way. And if you stick with me, I'll prove to you, you don't need to know anything about Andy Milligan to go through the discourse and hear everything I have to say about this. Now, on the note of Andy Milligan, who is he? Well, he was a director, he was a playwright, he was a screenwriter, he was an actor, he was an editor, he was a producer, a cinematographer, he did it all. In fact, you could say, not really you could say, this is the bare-bones truth to it, Andy Milligan, Andrew Jackson Milligan Jr., rather, is responsible, the, the forefather of the off-off-Broadway play. 
And the movie that we're going to be talking about on this episode is, it's not an off-off-Broadway play, but it certainly feels like one. There is a very storied history to Andy Milligan, and for the most part, in the film community, the horror underground, all corners of the film community, his name is generally accompanied by a sigh, a groan, hissing, glares, dogs bark, cars crash, babies cry. People don't like Andy Milligan. And sometimes you've, you've got this syndrome where people don't like something. You've got the assumption that the people that do like it, they fancy themselves something better. I like it because you don't understand it. And this isn't really a Fauntleroy sort of situation. You're not any better by liking Andy Milligan films than anybody else. I enjoy Andy Milligan. A lot of his work is new to me. I, I said this already, but this particular movie was completely new to me. And I will be the first person in line to admit Andy Milligan made a great deal of incompetent films. He made a lot of bad movies, beyond bad movies, just terrible timepiece films that made no sense. You can go back and listen to the previous installment of Milligan Madness and hear what I had to say about the ghastly one. And you'll see the attitude Andy Milligan took for a lot of his films. This movie, on the other hand, is very different from the majority of those, and I would say very different from all of his films except one, one of his earliest films called Vapors, which, in good time, we will get to and discuss. When I watched this movie, I went into it with the expectations of it's an Andy Milligan movie, so you get what you get. It's not going to be that great. And then when I finished the film, I was a little shocked that it was written, directed, and produced by Andrew Jackson Milligan. And it surprised me enough that I had to watch the movie again immediately after I had finished it. Now, when it comes to Andy Milligan, when it comes to his style, for the majority of his pictures, especially throughout the, the 1970s, he used an Aracon news camera. Now, to say the least about this type of camera, it is not made for feature film. The sound is usually recorded on the tape. It's sort of a magnetic strip thing, very similar to the early predecessors of home video cameras. For most of Andy Milligan's film, everything is crooked, upside down, out of focus, it's constantly shaking. You can usually hear him giving direction or yelling obscenities in the background, but this one is very much unlike the others. This one is focused and it's subtle. The shots actually are focused. The camera for the most part is stationary, and if you know anything about Andy Milligan's work, if you've seen something of his previously, it's a bit astounding. It really takes you aback, like, this is the same guy? Alright. I don't know what happened. <laughs> what happened after this? And I may have said this already, but this is not a horror movie. This is one of the very few movies that Andy made that are, are not horror films. And after finally seeing this, it, it really kind of made me wonder, why did this guy focus so much on horror where I, I feel his talents are much greater, greatly, greater, greatly, greater, I don't know, used much better in a dramatic vicinity. We are talking about Nightbirds from 1970. The IMDB synopsis says, while living rough on the streets of London's East End, a young man, Dink, encounters the mysterious D and they begin a relationship. When tenderness gives way to cruelty, they become consumed by darkness, which really gives this movie some depth. And it's not entirely inaccurate. I, this movie has a lot of depth. This movie has a lot of rawness. Inside of it, I wouldn't by any circumstances call it fun. There's nothing fun about it at all. It's very devastating. But the biggest thing about this movie is it's beyond misogynistic. It, it's incredibly misogynistic. And 
damned if I didn't just say I'm not going to talk too much about Andy Milligan and his personal life because there's this book by Jimmy McDonough that you can get all about it. But Andy Milligan and all of his films are streaked with misogyny. The man did not care for women whatsoever. And I'm not saying this is any sort of justifiable defense. I mean, he's been dead for quite some time, so I don't exactly know it would be available to cancel. But still, Andy Milligan did not particularly care for women whatsoever. People that have done interviews and discussed him and his, his, his life have been very adamant about that. You hear this about Lucio Fulci, too, but not, these two are not comparable. Lucio Fulci had some problems and was was known to be very, very hard to deal with and had a streak of misogyny that ran through him. But Andy Milligan, stringently and with a passion, hated women, and it's very, very evident in this movie. I, I would boldly... I guess this is boldly. I'm not really quite sure anymore. I would boldly state that this movie was written with the idea of hatred for women behind it. That being said, and again, I'm not trying to make any sort of defense for Andy Milligan or his mindset... It still, I feel, plays off as one of the more successful films. If not, we've not gotten through them all, so I really can't say this, so we'll just write this down that I said it here. If not the most successful story of, of actual terror, of remorse, of drama, of the grotesque, of terrible things happening, and he has a very eccentric career of bizarre, incest-fueled, humpback-driven movies where awful things happen to people, always just... Terrible things consistently happening over and over and over again to people. This movie feels so completely different. This movie is lonely and it's hollow. I think it's very, very depressing, but in an articulate, you know, a Wim Wenders sort of way. Jesus Christ. I don't know if anybody in the history of fucking time has compared or used Wim Wenders as a reference in the same goddamn sentence as Andy Milligan, and that's one of the most harebrained dumb things I've ever said, but we'll probably leave it in the show. It's not that pretty. It's not really pretty at all, but that's one of the things that makes this movie very interesting. It's one of the things that makes this movie in itself actually attractive, is the fact that it's very bare bones, it's very cheap, all of Andy Milligan's movies were cheap, but this one fits in its setting, it fits in its place, sort of. I do have a discrepancy, not so much a discrepancy, I actually think in the long run this helps make the movie a little bit more entertaining and a little bit more ferocious and have a little bit more tenacity but it is a bit displaced in time. But not like other Milligan films where he decided with $20 in his pocket, yeah, you know what, I'm going to make a movie that takes place in 1776. I'm going to film it in Long Island. All right, Andy. Why? Why do you have to just walk uphill every single fucking time? I don't know. Read the book. The Ghastly One by Jimmy McDonough. So talking about misogyny, let's stay on course with that for a little while. What you've got essentially with this movie is a misguided youth, I guess you could say, played by Berwick Kaler. Now, Berwick Kaler is a member of what I like to call the Milligan Militia actors who returned to work with Andy for multiple roles. And not only did he work with Andy Milligan for multiple roles, he did five of them. Wow. In the late 1960s into the early 1970s, Andy went over to London and he shot five movies. The Bloodthirsty Butchers, The Body Beneath, Nightbirds, The Rats Are Coming, The Werewolves Are Here, and The Man With Two Heads, in which Berwick Kaler is in all of them. He plays Tobias in Bloodthirsty Butchers, Spool in The Body Beneath, Dink in Nightbirds, which we're discussing, Malcolm and the Rats Are Coming, the Werewolves Are Here, Jack and the Man with Two Heads. And he, to my knowledge so far, is one of the very few people that actually fondly discusses Andy Milligan that has something nice to say about him and gives him a lot of credit for helping him start his career, which 
different from most Andy Milligan actors, I would say Berwick has a fairly established career. He did a great deal of British television. He's done several movies, did very well for himself. For a guy that started his career with a director who is notoriously known as one of the worst directors of all time. Which I've babbled about this before, but I find it so strange that Ed Wood is given such fondness. He's spoken about so lovingly. And then Andy Milligan, people just, they, they end friendships over it. People hate Andy Milligan. You tell somebody that you like Andy Milligan, they think something's wrong with you. Andy Milligan. You just gotta say his name over and over and over again, I guess, on these episodes. Hold on a second. What is that? Sounds like the trumpets of Bethlehem. Uh, 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 wait. From the sound of that music, it looks like it's time for another round of Keith David or David Keith. Salutations, my friend. That music usually means that it's time for everyone's favorite game, Keith David, or David Keith. But on this episode, the segment sadly will be replaced by an in memoriam. Legendary Dean Stockwell died November 7th at his home in Taos, New Mexico at 85 years old. 85 brilliant years. An amazing artist who defied boundaries with their vision, Dean Stockwell is mostly known for his work as an actor. Outstanding work that each time was unique and seemed almost effortless for the man. Honor his legacy and life's work by watching some of these films he appears in. Paris, Texas, directed by Wim Wenders. A disheveled man who wanders out of the desert, Travis Henderson, played by Harry Dean Stanton, seems to have no idea who he is. When a stranger manages to contact his brother Walt, played by Dean Stockwell, Travis is awkwardly reunited with his sibling. Travis has been missing for years and his presence unsettles Walt and his family, which also includes Travis's own son, Hunter, played by Hunter Carson. Soon, Travis must confront his wife, Jane, played by Natasha Kinski, and try and put his life back together. College student Jeffrey Beaumont, played by Kyle McLaughlin, returns home after his father has had a stroke. When he discovers a severed ear in an abandoned field, Beaumont teams up with the detective's daughter, Sandy Williams, played by Laura Dern, to solve the mystery. 
They believe beautiful lounge singer Dorothy Valens, played by Isabella Rosalini, may be connected with the case and Beaumont finds himself becoming drawn into her dark, twisted world where he encounters sexually depraved psychopath Frank Booth, played by Dennis Hopper. Dean Stockwell plays the supercharged Frank Booth's dear friend Ben, who is oh so suave in this one. The Dunlich Horror, directed by Daniel Holler. Dr. Henry Armitage, played by Ed Bagley, an expert in the occult, goes to the old Watley Manor in Dunwich looking for Nancy Wagner, played by Sandra Dee, a student who went missing at the previous night. He and Elizabeth, a friend and classmate of Nancy's, are turned away by Wilbur, played by Dean Stockwell, the family's insidious heir who has plans for the young girl. But Armitage won't be deterred. Through conversations with the locals, he soon unearths the Watley's darkest secret, as well as a great evil. And of course, you'd be crazy if we didn't mention Quantum Leap every rootin' tootin' episode. And there's plenty more Dean where that came from. The Werewolf of Washington, D.C. co-starring Day of the Dead's Terry Alexander, Battlestar Galactica, To Live and Die in L.A., The Boy with the Green Hair, Dune, and much, much more. Though the body may die, art is forever. Farewell, Dean Stockwell. You are forever. May your soul rest in peace. So, Berwick Kaler plays Dink, a down-on-his-luck London boy. Why? We later find out that he had a spat with his mother and was ready to move on. He's barfing in an alleyway when Julie Shaw, playing the character D, discovers him, and this is the very first scene of the movie. There's a guy with a Ringo Starr haircut throwing up, and then all of a sudden, a knockoff Sharon Tate appears. And honestly, nothing really happens from this point forward. It's a stormy relationship between the two and Andy Milligan's hate letter to women. Everything seems absolutely perfect, and you think it's going to be one of those dramatic love stories where it's a struggle and they have absolutely nothing and they build upon each other to get out of the East End where everything's awful and they move and they have a great life. No, nothing happens like that. She takes him in, the character D takes in Dink. Our hero is named Dink, if you can call him a hero. Our protagonist, hero might be a fucking stretch here. She takes Dink in. And it becomes the story of her pretty much training him, puppy-like, to become this broken, subservient slave under her iron thumb. And all of it's done, of course, with Andy Milligan's style. A great deal of sexuality, nearly to a pornographic extent, but I will defend that in this movie. It's really not pornographic. You get to see some dick stalk. There's a little bit of dick root. I will say you do see much more of the female body than the male body, but... It's for 1970, I can completely see why this was considered lewd. In 1970, I would say this is pornographic. And I know I can't say something like dick stalk and dick root without taking a moment to explain it. You see, 
you can show penis in a movie without actually showing the penis. You get the dick stalk, you know, it's it's like the little root that's underground, but you really can't say root because the dick root, that's when they show pubic hair. I bet you didn't think you were going to learn any of these things when you sat down to listen to this episode, but goddamn, I am here to teach you people and inform. There's some under boob, but there also is some whole boob. There's a lot of, there's two, maybe three shots of full frontal female nudity, and mind you, this is 1970, but Andy Milligan didn't exactly make studio movies, but I also wouldn't say they're independent. Now, to the definition of an independent movie, yes, certainly they are, but... Still, when it comes to making an independent movie, there's an idea that it's going to be bought or purchased and sold, and I don't know the technicalities when it came to who was interested in this movie or where it was going to show aside from off-off-Broadway theaters in New York City or good old 42nd Street later on down the line. Now, with most Andy Milligan movies, there isn't any detail to who these characters are. They're just people that are thrown at you upon the screen. None of them really matter until they die or something absolutely insidious happens that they have caused, or it's a part of their story arc, something like that. This time around, there's a much more intimate feel to things. We don't really know our characters, but as the movie progresses, we begin to, to use the word again, become intimate with them. We start seeing problems with them, and not constantly negative problems, but for Dink, we start seeing the problems with his life. We start seeing his psyche. We start seeing why he feels so weak, and then with the D character, we start seeing her predatory nature. And I mentioned several times at this point, that I feel it's not even undertones. The direction of this movie, the writing of this movie, is incredibly misogynistic, and nothing I say is in any defense whatsoever of Andy Milligan's beliefs or his work. So just trying to discuss the movie here, you got to run with it no matter how heinous it sounds or wrong it sounds. But Julie Shaw's character, Dee, is a predator. She does this almost for sport, and as we progress through the film, we see the abuse happen, and it begins with a role reversal. When she gets Dink under her spell, so to say, when she claims dominance, she performs oral sex on him, and he's smitten with it. He's a virgin. He's never done anything like this before, so he instantly connects. And throughout the film, when they have a fight, when there's aggression, when there's problems with other characters, she has Dink get on his knees and return the favor. So essentially, he sucks her dick throughout the entirety of the movie and withers away each time as it's coming. It's like... She's sucking his soul via her metaphorical penis. This episode's getting weird. <laughs> That's a fucking statement, isn't it? It's Andy Milligan, though. I mean, it's gotta get weird. This movie itself has a very stage play-like feel to it. Now, there are hardly any sets. We have an apartment where most of the story takes place, and maybe one or two other characters. We go to a shop where at one point they try to steal a quilt. We get to meet this older character named Mabel that Dink has been visiting, who is this very odd, affectionate older woman who is clearly attracted to him. But aside from that, we stay in the same place, a very grungy, broken-up apartment that Dee is renting from a man named Ginger, played by Bill Clancy. Or Ginge, as we learn he affectionately likes to be called. And each time a character is introduced, even though maybe only one or two are given to us through the entirety of the film, we get to learn something each time about the characters. I mentioned there's a scene where they go to steal a quilt. They go to a shop and they try to do this ruse where Dee is looking at a jacket and Dink is going to steal it and he gets beaten up by the store owner. And what happens with this is the art of storytelling. And it's kind of remarkable. I said I was really shocked at the end of this film 
knowing it was written and directed by Andy Milligan to see at the end of it it was written and directed by Andy Milligan because the way the story is told is beautifully clever writing. A lot of effort was put into it, and this movie was shot in something like 12 days. They did The Body Beneath after this, and Berwick Kaler himself has said they w he wished that they spent more time doing The Body Beneath as to where I'm quite the opposite. I wish they had spent more time, they, Andy, Andy Milligan, had spent more time working on this project instead of that because this is despite being misogynistic, to say it again, it is really an emotional story, and if you can get besides the angles and obviously the point of the movie being women are bad, if you do anything with a woman, it's going to ruin your life, don't women suck the soul out of you, women are bad, if you can get past that horseshit, this, I think, ends up being a more terrifying product than The Body Beneath, this ends up being a more terrifying product than The Ghastly Ones, or, for that matter, any other horror story that he'd tried to make, Carnage... That one's kind of good. But I think the implications, I think, the idea of this character, Dink, the, the, the implications not being inherently misogyny, but when you can get past that and you can look at what's going on with these characters, it's a very weak person. The gender does not matter whatsoever. The character of Dink is broken. They're wink. Wink? Dinkin? Ugh. They're weak. And they're looking for any sort of salvation. They're looking for any sort of hope. And they meet a false hero. They meet a false prophet, so to say. I think there's a lot of focus on the inside of this, the, the, the point, the heart, the story of this movie on blind trust, on blind idolatry, and a sentiment on the negativity of love, just, just blindly falling in love with somebody because something works out your way and the harms of that, the venom of that, I guess you could say. Because as things progress and we continue out through the movie, we learn much more about Dee, the owner of the building she lives in, Ginge. We've got scenes back and forth where he comes to visit her, and it's obvious she's paying her rent with favors to him. And he laughingly and smugly calls her out constantly about Dink. He refers to him almost as a pet, and we begin to learn that this may be a behavior pattern with Dee. She does this regularly. We encounter a former suitor of hers named Tom who is completely blind and... From what we see, it seems like it's her fault, but there is nothing intense. There is nothing overwhelming about this movie. For the most part, it's two people either arguing or fucking, and I wouldn't even say fucking, simulated oral sex in one room with brief explosions of not action, but emotion. And everything is very, very raw. This was Berwick Kaler's first role. Julie Shaw, I think, only made one other picture. Almost everyone involved in this were thespians. They were all more passionate about the stage than they were doing films. And it really works to Andy's benefit here. He, he had constant character actors coming in and out of his stable, but none of them were good. And according to Berwick Kaler, most of what came out, most of the performances and why they were so raw was Andy Milligan, was his direction. And it again returns me to the question, how did he make something so emotional and raw in this essence and then just keep turning around and making absolute garbage over and over and over again? And it's not like there's anything wrong with garbage. I mean, most psychotronic horror fans in general, they, they love garbage. And when you are an Andy Milligan fan, you have to acknowledge the movies are absolutely terrible, but this has a very distinct emotion to it, and it's a very cold, ferocious emotion. Touching again upon misogyny, I think... A lot of Milligan's direction here was to be an attack on masculinity, an attack on the male bravado. Twice in the movie, Dee calls Dink a queer, and at the beginning of the film, there's a conversation about Dink being a virgin. A lot of pushing and pulling and joke-making about that. There's a great deal of focus on Dink's mother, so I, I think 
looking at this from an outside angle, Milligan was having a bit of a, a Sigmund Freud moment with it. And it really does come down to a bit of Freudian psychology that it's all women's fault. It's all your mother's fault. Your mother is the root of all evil and you'll do absolutely everything to try and replace your mother with women in your life. Aren't they just so goddamn bad? Couldn't we just get along without women? But it's Andy Milligan. It's, it's Andy Milligan making this statement. And to say it, Andy Milligan was very, very, very gay. He did not care for women. And that's not a defense. I know I'm not trying to sway, I guess, any sort of belief on the movie here because I've said two or three times now, I like this movie. I think this is a very jarring movie. I think this is an emotional movie. And it's very different or indifferent to the rest of Milligan's work. I see something here that is very, I mean, in all of his films, I can't just say I see something here personal because there is something personal in all of his films, whether it's the weird humpbacks or the, the incest themes, but this itself seems like a, a, a scream in the dark. This seems like something wretched from within Andy's soul where he sees himself as the dink character who is going through this. And the unfortunate thing is the character doesn't know he's being abused. He doesn't know bad things are happening to him. He's in love. He thinks he's being taken care of. He thinks he's found romance. He thinks everything is perfect for him. But he degrades. His persona degrades. His life degrades. They eat out of the trash. Something that is... I think incredibly significant with this movie is early on, while they're making love, a pigeon crashes through the window, which I think was the original name of this movie, Pigeon. I don't know, I'm always wrong. And Dink discovers that it's got a broken leg, so he decides that he's going to nurse this bird back to health, much to Dee's dismay. She hates it, she hates the idea of it, she finds them to be bad omens, and as their relationship degrades, Dink continuously is taking care of this bird and building it back to health until, lo and behold, Dee breaks its neck and throws it up upon the roof. And that itself is symbolic to their relationship, but I think Milligan's relationship with women in general. Very broken. Murderous. Violent. The film has a runtime of 1 hour and 17 minutes, but it seems to go by much faster than that. There is a great deal of simulated, I would say gratuitous, fellatio cunnilingus. Simulated cunnilingus, to use the correct terminology. And then emotion. Just a, a great deal of raw emotion. And I love the concept of no locations. I love things happening in one exact place. If you do it correctly, if you write carefully, you can build something so absolutely anticipatory that it destroys the people that are watching it. You can do something that overwhelms you with emotion. And I'm not talking about The Shining. That was a massive location. Whenever I talk about this, people go, oh yeah, like The Shining. No, motherfucker, not like The Shining. Not one giant goddamn hotel. I don't care that we don't see every room in the movie. That's not what I'm talking about. The big fucking gahuna. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> gonna make a reference, it better be a fucking DeVito one. I'm saying you've already done plenty of things to regret. You just don't know what they are. It's when you discover them. When you see the folly in something you've done, and you wish that you had it to do over. But you know you can't. Because it's too late. So you pick that thing up and you carry it with you to remind you that life goes on. The world will spin without you. You really don't matter in the end. Then you will attain character. Because honesty will reach out from inside and 
tattoo itself all across your face. Until that day. However. You cannot expect to go beyond a certain point. One room. One room. And we venture out onto the streets of London. We go to the character Mabel's apartment. But for the most part, all the action, all the tenacity, all the heartbreak happens in one place and you don't look at it you don't look at anything but what's going on on screen that you're either enchanted by the filth the seediness as people call it which I hate as a term because I don't think of anything dirty I just think of like a horticulturalist I think of somebody in a greenhouse punching holes in peat moss just dropping little seeds and seedy it does not that word never works for me the right way hey you want to go to a seedy bar yeah sure can I get a ficus there it just it sounds weird to me Lewd. I think lewd works a little bit better. There's many series of lewd scenes in this. Whenever they fight, D brings Dink onto his knees, and it's all a power struggle. You could even take it into a, a Roman vicinity of bowing onto your knees in defeat every single time, but the character Dink never realizes this. It never comes to fruition in his head because he thinks he's loved. He thinks everything is working out until we've come to the exciting end of this movie. And this isn't, I keep repeating myself, the average Andy Milligan film. Nobody's head gets cut off, you don't get a hatchet in the back of the head, there aren't eyes being gouged out, there's not any bloodthirsty butchers. It's all about soul and emotion and rawness. It, it really is a, a beautifully raw performance by Berwick Kaler and Julie Shaw, everyone. Uh, Elaine Shore, who plays Mabel. Bill Clancy, that plays Ginger, just comes off as this awful creep character. And this is a fucking stretch, I, I will tell you. This is a stretch, but while I was watching this movie, Bill Clancy's character, Ginger, who owns the building that Dee lives in, I couldn't help but think how much Keanu Reeves' character in The Neon Demon reminded me of that. So if you've seen that film, that's the level of seediness in just a few shots, somebody leaning against a corner. We never see this character aside from when he knocks on Dee's door and she opens it and they're standing at the stoop, the entrance to her door, and it still is a very uncomfortable, dirty, grimy performance. And all of that comes to Andy Milligan. He directed these people. That's, believe it or not, a director's job. They get the performance that they see in their head out of the actors. So what happened with, with every other Andy Milligan movie? Vapors, I said at the beginning of the show, is very similar to this. And it is very emotional. It's very raw. And what does that mean? What does raw mean? I mean, we're not talking about chicken. We're not talking about steak here. I'm talking about the performance, the emotion that's coming out of these actors and it's something that's got to be enticed from the director it's something that's got to be brought out of them the average person it's, it's hard to cry on command it's hard to even if you love a movie recite everything the exact same way the character in the movie does that's what makes actors actors but there still has to be something from the director that pulls them into that place that gets them to the vision that they have inside of their head and when you watch collectively the work of Andy Milligan, it just seems to lack direction and it seems to be incompetent that he just went out there and said, all right, we're shooting a movie today, so we're going to go out there and shoot the movie without a script, without any form of leadership. And this has such a, a full feel to it, if that makes sense. It, it feels like it was 
scene from beginning to end, that there was attention to detail, that there was attention to writing, that there was a thoughtfulness that was put into this, that this was a very personal story. And I've said before in this episode that everything that Andy did had a personal touch to him. So why does this, and I can't answer these questions, I'm just saying them aloud, why does this have such a more intense, rich, complete feeling than anything else? And he made five films back to back while he was living and working in England. And I mean, he, he started The Body Beneath pretty much while shooting this, and it, to me, completely lacks the touch, the authenticity of this movie. Really, out of the collective work of Andy Milligan, I mean, this this is an enjoyable... Oh, see, you can't say enjoyable. It's a rough ride. There's nothing fun about it. But it's like funny games. That movie's not enjoyable. Nothing good happens in that movie. You're seeing an innocent family tortured by two absolute sociopaths for, for no inherent reason. But at the same time, it's enjoyable. You enjoy what you're watching. It's psychotic. This isn't violent. This isn't atrocious in that matter. And I like funny games. I'm not calling it an atrocious movie in a bad way, but what the characters do are atrocious. Fucking semantics. Why do I explain this shit? You understood what I was saying? Mother, motherfucker. I gotta stop doing that. But questioning Andy Milligan isn't as defeating as it sounds. Yes, I'll probably never get answers for this, but it does help. Harken emotion when you're watching the films. It really does make you wonder. The man himself was completely, I wouldn't say inherently shrouded in mystery because people like Jimmy McDonough have dusted off a lot of information about him and who he was. But his maneuvers, why he did things, you can't question an artist. An artist creates art for the reason that they want to. You create art because you want it to be seen. I, I feel that Andy Milligan wanted his work to be seen. He didn't care what it was. He wanted to make it, and he did. He fulfilled it. The Nightbirds is a strange bird, pun intended. I don't want to call it stoic, but there is a great deal of stoicism inside of the movie. There is just long-winded scenes of Dee and Dink laying in bed fantasizing with one another. There's a really beautiful scene where Dink takes Dee up to the roof and he says, let me show you my castle. And it's the sprawling city behind them. It's the idea of, I love you. We can do everything and anything together. And Julie Shaw, it's a shame this actress didn't really go on and have a bigger career with anything. She's got this wonderful nature about her of playing, not necessarily a careless character, but somebody you can see inside of you can see with just simple movements of her eyes when she has dink upon his knees sucking her metaphorical dick well, not even metaphorical you know i mean something's going on down there she just looks upward to the sky rolls her eyes not disinterested but the whole idea of this knowing that it's just a game to her slowly starts appearing on screen more and more throughout the movie and you don't feel bad for dink though you don't feel bad for her we find out that she has done this D many, many times before. I mentioned the blind minstrel character Tom, one of her victims, so to say. Yeah. Good luck. But when things are starting to really get tense, she calls her mother and we find out that she's had a child she's given up that may die of syphilis, her ex-lover. Also, it's just villainizing women, it's demonizing women, it, it, it's Milligan's attempt of making a boogeyman for a movie that didn't have any boogeymen in it. It's just unfortunate when you when you look at this movie, and I'm trying to be constructive here, you, you look at what it is about, it's just a, a vulgar attack 
on women in general. And this scene that I'm discussing, I think, really is the the capitalization on that, that we've already established that D is what you could say a shady character, but now we dump all this information to really let you know how awful, quote-unquote, she is. But it's, it's, it's within the character and what we're seeing, too. I think you could easily do the story, well, there's no thinking, you could easily do the story with a role reversal. What makes it intriguing is using Berwick Kaler as this juvenile lad that doesn't know what he's getting into. The harming and damning thing is using Julie Shaw as this siren-esque woman that is going to lead him astray and that it's all a woman's fault. That's why bad things happen. That's the problematic thing with this movie. They dump all this on us, we learn all these horrible things about her and how awful she is, and the character says, uh, I really don't care, having children's not for me. Can I get the money? I need some money. And it feels like there's going to be a third act at this point, that we're going to go back to the apartment, that there's going to be something between Dink and Dee, but we return to the apartment and she frightfully screams at him and calls him a queer and tells him that he has to leave. He is absolutely awestruck. He tells her that he loves her and that we can solve everything. She tells him to leave. Dink leaves. He, he, he doesn't know what to do. He's absolutely broken. He goes upstairs to his castle, his kingdom, the roof of the building, where he discovers his pigeon. He sees what Dee has done to it, and as he reaches out for it, he falls off the roof. <gasps> oh, yeah. Spoilers, by the way, for this Andy Milligan movie that came out in 1970. And this, to me, I mean, like, you've got Nightmare on Elm Street. The movie ends, it's all a dream, Nancy's leaving, and then Freddy reaches through the door and pulls the mother in as the convertible's top turns into his sweater. This is the exact same thing here. Dink is dead on the street, his body laying atop his crumpled, broke-neck pigeon, and Dee finds another strange youth looking for a warm bed and affection. The cycle repeats itself. Gee golly gosh, aren't women evil? And I know I've hammered that over and over and over again with this episode, but it's you can't really ignore it, and I felt it was one of the most present things while watching this movie. And this is off-subject, but at the same time, on-subject. A couple days ago, I was watching The Abyss. I like James Cameron. I think that's a fairly established fact when it comes to this show. And I hadn't watched the movie in a couple years. In fact, <laughs> I was watching Underwater with Kirsten Stewart. And for the most part, I enjoyed myself. Uh, and the, the last act of that movie, bleh, it didn't do anything for me. I wanted to watch The Abyss afterward and ended up watching that. And I couldn't help but think the entire time I was watching it, mind you, for the first time in several years. This is from a man who is very, very angry at a woman. This entire movie is just a really angry guy mad at a woman. And to the extent that there's a scene, spoiler alert for the abyss, Mary Elizabeth's character Lindsay, who is Ed Harris's character Bud's wife, dies. And to bring her back, though all the mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation didn't work, slapping her a few times and calling her a bitch. That brings her right back to life. And it's just this overwhelming thought of like, yeah, a guy, a man really wrote this movie. You can, you can tell it reeks of it. And that itself, the, the scene from The Abyss I was just discussing, uh, yeah, it's kind of misogynistic. The Abyss, you could say, well, you wouldn't really could say, it, it has a deep touch of misogyny running through it. For further reference, when Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio's character is first introduced, Chris fucking Elliot, of all people, calls her Queen Bitch of the Universe, so that's how we are shown the, the first female character in the movie. I'd say that's 
misogynistic. Not comparing James Cameron to Andy Milligan, there's a bit more subtlety that's used with Nightbirds than something like The Abyss. But the reason I bring this up isn't just for filler or discourse purposes. It's the direction of things. It's the villainization of things. This movie, Nightbirds itself, could have been an incredibly invocative movie. It is. It's not just could have been. This is an invocative movie, but it could have been even more so invocative if the villainization wasn't strictly womankind in general. And that's, I don't think it's just this character. I don't think it's saying, don't trust blonde girls you meet on the street. It's the idea of women. They're witches. We should burn them. They're horrible. But that's Andy Milligan. And it leads you to a crossroads because I would hope the people listening to this show know wrong from right. So you should know. For one, villainizing anybody, any any type of people, any gender, any race, any creed, religion, villainizing anybody, not just on misinformation, but in general, is wrong. It, it's, it's, it's wrong. You can't take any form of fact and go, well, this type of people 200 years ago did this, so blah, 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 blah. No, it doesn't fucking matter. You can't do that. There's no sense to doing it. When you try to do it in a narrative fashion, earlier audiences, people in the 1970s, 80s, and oh, you can't even say earlier, people now, of course, there's a big point in missing that and looking past it. Uh, here's a off-the-wall reference, The Walking Dead. Rick's wife. There's a lot going on in that show. There's a lot that we see in the very first season, but I, I recall deeply when it came out, most of the comments were, Lori's a slut, fucking bitch, fucking whore. But the story itself shows you the intricacy behind these characters. So where do you get the audacity to give that character such a horrible th- why, a, a whore? A slut? For what? Now, you might not agree with the choices that she made, but you're not the fucking character. And for the most part, it's men that have these opinions on things, so nobody really gives a shit what you have to say about the fucking matter, buddy. There was articulation with that. It wasn't incessantly villainizing the character of Lori, though much of the audience felt that way. But it becomes such an easy thing to do, I think audiences end up falling with it. Uh, that bitch, that slut, look what she's doing to him. If that could have been stripped away from this, if you could have taken the identity from the gender of these characters without making somebody a bad guy, I think what Milligan could have articulated and shown is that you can't trust the world, is that naivety will be preyed upon like wolves and sheep. You didn't have to direct it upon the character being a woman. You didn't have to direct your hate upon a character being a woman, but Andy Milligan, let me fucking tell you, he had some problems. He had some deep-seated issues with his mother. He had deep-seated issues with everybody. He had a personal problem with the world. And it's not an excuse. I think the movie, for what it is, I mean, it, it's a 1970s film. It's a 1970 film, rather. And it's given to us upon the direction of a very, very strange man if you can really pry those two things apart and run through what you're watching here, it is, it's like a spider eating a fly. I think it's a one hour, 17 minute, articulate, raw performance of a spider eating a fly. The spider draws it carefully into its web and then liquefies the fly's insides and slowly sucks it dry. Now, 
A while back, I brought up something about how this movie looks, about the perception of its time. This movie came out in 1970, but it doesn't look like it. Dink doesn't look like a lad in 1970. It feels out of touch. It feels out of touch with its time, and that can really be damaging and problematic when it comes to making a feature production. Like, let's say you make a movie that takes place on Halloween and there are no Halloween decorations. Then how's anyone gonna know? Things like that. Berwick Kaler's Dink has this Ringo Starr haircut. Julie Shaw, like I said at the beginning of the show, she looks like a knockoff of Sharon Tate. It's 1970, music was changing, the mods were coming, London was a very hip and happening place in 1970, and the look of this movie is more like 1963, but it happens to play to the loneliness of this. Uh, mind you, the character Dink is stumbling alone in the street, he's homeless, he doesn't know what to do, he looks like he has come out of this idea of 1960s England. All of it plays into this weird kind of storybook, a nightmare storybook, a Grimm's fairy tale, something very atrocious, and you can liken it really to Red Riding Hood. He's not looking for anybody, he's looking for comfort, he's looking for safety, and he comes upon the wolf who hungrily preys upon him. And this is what I mean about not directly putting the blame on a gender. Not just saying it's a woman's fault, so that means all women are bad. You could have villainized the idea of people. It doesn't matter what the gender is. You could have just villainized the idea of predatory people that you can't trust people. I mean, I, I hate saying something like that because we should live in a world, we should live in a society where you can trust people, where you can go to the police, where you can go to your neighbor, where you can go to somebody you've never met before and say you need help, but you can't. You go to somebody and you say you need help, most people look at you with a predatory glance. Wonder what I can get out of this person. What a fool, what a dummy. There aren't many genuine people in this world, and I'm not saying you listening to this show, you're not a genuine, kind-hearted person, because there are people that do have Beautiful souls, for lack of a better term, but more often than not, you're going to encounter assholes. But here I am, waxing philosophical with Andy fucking Milligan's Nightbirds from 1970. It's a deep movie, though. I think it has a lot more to offer than the average Andy Milligan production, and it's something... I would say, if you're interested in this man's work, start with this. Check this movie out. See, at least if you can understand or feel what I'm trying to ramble on about here. It's misdirected, but it's not poorly directed. And usually when it comes to Andy Milligan films, they're misdirected and poorly directed, so here you at least get one out of two. So with Nightbirds 1970, you've got a story of damnation, isolation, abuse, lust, love, or the lack thereof in this world. All the themes Andy Milligan loves to use, except incest, there is no incest this time. This may be the only incest-free Andy Milligan movie. And that's sad that that's gotta be one of the plus columns in this movie, no incest, yay. I think a lesson with this movie, and I could be overreaching here, but possibly a lesson that Andy Milligan was trying to extend upon the audience is the fact that almost impulsatorily, if that's a word, I'm still going to use it regardless. With just a small bit of emotion, people disregard their whole lives, everything they've done for themselves, just to feel this flare, this flicker, this flash of good, this, this emotion, to feel anything. Same reason people do drugs. People fall in love and insist on love for the same reasons they do drugs. People are willing to give up absolutely everything for the idea of love to know somebody else without knowing themselves, without ever learning their strengths, what they can do. They will give themselves 
completely over to somebody and let it be vanquished. Let their soul, their entity, their joy, whatever they are, be destroyed because of the idea of love. How can you love anybody else if you don't love yourself? Possibly, this movie could be an exploration of self-exploration. You venture out on this quest into the unknown, into the cruel, cold world, into society, but if you can't love yourself, how can you ever love anyone else? But like I said, I'm overreaching. Because if anything, it's more Andy Milligan's hate letter to women. But with all that said, it looks like we've reached the end of another Milligan madness. The next time we get together for one of these, we'll be doing The Body Beneath. So here's your chance to go ahead and find the movie, check it out beforehand. Might make the experience a little bit more fun. I told a story at the beginning of the episode about somebody that reached out to thank me for doing this and inquire when the next one was happening. That really kind of spiced me up. That made me really want to do another Andy Milligan episode. I was worried about this, and I've said it a dozen times. People just don't like to even hear his name. It really turns people off, so I didn't know really what audience I was approaching with this. And to me, I think the biggest part isn't championing Andy Milligan. It's not looking at his work. It's film history. It's looking at what he's responsible for, the off-off-Broadway world, and some of the things that I think, without Andy Milligan, independent cinema would be lacking. He really was a rule-breaker. It doesn't matter how disagreeable he was or questionable or what he put inside of his movies. It doesn't matter if they were fucking porns or not. I mean, to me, it's insulting to try and cut between a porn or a motion picture and say one is art or the other one isn't. Roger Watkins made some really terrific porns, and not just him. There are really in-depth, detailed porns that, yes, there are hardcore scenes of ass-fuckery, but besides that, the movies are good. They're shot well, they need to be acknowledged, just as everything else does, and Nightbirds really does for 1970, I, I would say, have a lewd pornographic feel to it. I, I could easily see this being shown in a porno theater, and it doesn't represent that. It represents a lot of hate toward women, but trying to strip that aside, and, and it's really difficult because it makes me sound like I'm defending where this came from, but I'm trying to break down the, the core of this to where you can enjoy it, to where you can see the difference in this man's work. So stringently, this whole statement really insists upon you seeing other Andy Milligan films and being able to compare this to them, but this is an emotional, dark, and very raw piece. I would say maybe the crown jewel of the box set. Now, there are restorations that are much better than this. There are color restorations in this box set. But being able to see this movie, being able to be exposed to it and see the difference in some of the deeper work of Andy Milligan, I personally, this made the box set for me. This is more than I ever thought that I, I would end up enjoying an Andy Milligan movie. But saying I enjoyed it also is very conflicting. So that's it. You have been listening to Hank, the world's greatest. The ashtray is full and the bottle is empty. Until next week, pleasant tomorrows. On the next episode.
Theorizing that one could time travel within his own lifetime, Dr. Hank, the world's greatest, stepped into the Quantum Leap Accelerator and vanished. He woke to find himself trapped in the past, facing mirror images that were not his own and driven by an unknown force to change history for the better. His only guide on this journey is Al, an observer from his own time who appears in the form of a hologram. A melons. Who has? Honkers? Hooters? Headlights? Uh... Tatas? Teeters? Tweeters? And so Doctor, the world's greatest, finds himself leaping from life to life, striving to put right what once went wrong, and hoping each time that his next leap will be the leap home. Find out the next place Doctor Hank, the world's greatest, leaps to on next week's episode of Death by DVD. Uh, meatballs, uh, mangoes, cream pies, cupcakes, uh... Bangers, bouncers, balumbas, bazongas, breasts! Death by DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. And now our national anthem. So this is Radio Land, the infinite turtle, the waves through the ether fuzz roll on forever. Find them and follow them on SoundCloud, Facebook, and Instagram today.